Let's pray again before we open up Scripture together. Lord, unless uh, you act, uh, we will remain blind, we will remain stuck, we will remain deaf, we will remain hard-hearted. We praise you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and make us receptive to your truth. I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray, Lord, for those that are struggling, that are despairing, that are depressed, that are discouraged, that you would, right now, by your word, help them. That you would help them identify the true nature of the problems they face so that they might come to know the true cures that you provide. We pray that you would do this in such a way that makes it clear that you receive the glory that this is the work of no man, that we would give you praise and honor for accomplishing your work among us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 7. We're working through Mark chapter 7. As you're turning there, the question I'll put before you is this. Do you want to change? Do you want to change? And a second question, can you change? Most people answer yes to the first. They want to change. There's a legitimate desire deep down to change into something different than what they are. People are not so confident about the second question, whether they can change. The desire for change that we all experience, I think it's part of the human experience, is to want to change, is sometimes so frustrated by our seeming inability to change. The husband says, I want to be a better husband. And the very next day he blows up at his wife, and grows deeper into that despair which is convincing him that maybe he just cannot change. The mother says, I gotta stop being so impatient. And she gets going with her day, only to find herself losing patience almost immediately as the day begins. The person who is begging that they would be content and hoping that they would change to be more at peace with the way their life is, goes to sleep discontented, disappointed, restless, lonely, angry, because life is not turning out how they wanted it to be. Or the young man who says, I hate my sin. I'm repulsed by it. And I'm never going to do it again, only to fail again in the following week. I wonder if that's any of you. You really do want to change. There are some things about you that when you're honest with yourself, you look in the mirror and you say, I hate that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that kind of man. I don't want to be that kind of woman. I want to change. I don't want this to be the characteristic of my whole life. I don't want to end this way. The things that are going on in my life right now, I want them to come to an end. And yet again, And again, week after week, month after month, there seems to be 
no change at all, that you keep falling back into the same ways. And perhaps secretly, you begin to wonder, well, maybe God is omnipotent, but my problems are simply immutable, unchangeable. This is just who I am. This is just my lot in life. This is just fate. You start to get a kind of deterministic mindset that I have just fallen into this bad luck situation that things are the way things are and things will never change. And you begin to wrestle with feelings of despair, depression, anxiety, maybe anger. I wonder if that's you. These are common problems that all humans face. And I think many of us, if not all of us, to some degree, can identify with what I've just described. That you do want to change, and yet change is sometimes so frustrating, so difficult, seemingly impossible. You ever feel this way? Whoa. Maybe the Lord doesn't, or maybe the enemy doesn't want you to hear this sermon. Getting attacked by stands knocking down (laughs) have you ever felt that way i I think if we want to really change that we have to know what's wrong that you can't really change you can't really change at all if you don't know what the problem is if you can't identify the problem there are people who are paid lots of money to be able to identify problems businesses are stagnant you hire a consultant they come in they tell you what the problem is why so you can fix the problem Uh, a coach is no good coach at all if he can't identify the problems with his team and correct them. Uh, Anyone who wants to be able to lead people to grow and to change needs to be able to identify rightly problems. This is the way that uh, we grow, is identifying the right problems. When I was in basketball in, in the college years, after every game, we would uh, schedule a time to get together and watch the film of the game. So it's not a fun time, especially if you had a bad game, because there was your mistake in front of everyone, and coach would point it out, and he would tell you, that's where you messed up, and here's how you need to change. But you got better. Why? Because you saw your problem. Probably even worse than that was what they made us do in seminary. Yes, you had to record yourself preaching Uh, You had to dress up in a suit and tie. You had to do that whole thing. And they would record you preaching. And for your homework assignment, you had to go find a little cubby, put your headphones in, and watch yourself preach. If you've never done that, I hope you never have to. It's horrible. All the awkward hand motions you make. The weird ums and uhs and speech stutterings. It's terrible. I had to do that over the lockdown for like eight weeks. Give me some pity. It was a terrible moment. When we got home on Sundays, we couldn't meet in the gathering. Uh, Watching myself preach, it was awful. But hopefully you learn, because you learn from your mistakes, right? You learn to identify problems, and that's how you grow. This is part of our life. If you misdiagnose your problems, you won't be able to change. You won't be able to change. The change you want will be utterly elusive. You won't be able to change at all if you can never identify the right problems. If you go to the doctor with cancer and he tells you you've got a case of the flu, he's wrong and you will not be helped. 
you need to be able to accurately identify your problems. So if you have a difficult marriage, if you have difficult friendships, if you have a difficult time navigating life, you got to identify the problem so that you can know how to change, to fix it, to correct it so you can grow. The title of the sermon this morning, as you'll notice there on your bulletin, is this, What's Wrong With Us? Because if we want to grow, we got to know what's wrong with us. What's wrong with humanity? What's the big problem? What's the big deal? Why are we struggling so with life? Most people will be quick to admit that something is wrong with us. Uh, they, they might come up with all kinds of different ideas as to what's wrong with us, but most people have an idea that something's not right, that there are issues with humanity. I was recently reading a, a book, the introduction of a book called Becoming Evil, subtitle, How Ordinary People Commit Genocide and Mass Killing. A nice book to read on a Sunday afternoon if you have nothing else to do. The author, a guy named James Waller, he's not a Christian, but he's a social psychologist, wrote this book, and his whole point was to show that it doesn't take the weird, extreme cases for, peop for people to become evil, that people uh, can become evil in very ordinary ways. He begins the introduction by describing the biblical story of Cain and Abel, and how the first two people born to Adam and Eve, 5% of them were murderers. That's one half, one out of two. Cain killed his brother Abel. He goes on to write, thousands of years later, we can all be considered the children of Cain. The whole introduction then is this enumeration of the horrific crimes humanity has committed and, our att and his attempt is to show that there is something desperately wrong with humanity. He writes, wars have erupted everywhere humans are present. Except for brief and precarious interludes, there has never truly been peace in the world. Another paragraph, he writes, Since the Napoleonic Wars, we have fought an average of six international wars per decade. He says, The four decades after World War II saw 150 wars, involving more than 60 member states of the United Nations and only 26 days of world peace. 26 days of world peace. Buried in the midst of all our progress in the 20th century are well over 100 million persons who met a violent death at the hands of their fellow human beings in wars and in conflicts. His point is to say progress We've made progress. Uh, sure, you could point to technology and say we've made progress. Sure, there's more literacy. More people are reading. Maybe education has got better. But in reality, we're actually more violent now than before. He cites the statistic that uh, there were five more violent deaths in the 20th century than in the 19th. And ten times as many violent deaths in the 20th century than in the 18th. His point is to say that it seems like technology and education is only making us better at killing each other. Something's wrong with humanity. And his whole point in all this is to say that this is ordinary people. This isn't the extreme situation of the sociopath, the mentally deranged individual. Uh, if Hitler's going crazy trying to kill everyone, 
That's one thing. But somehow he manages to influence thousands of others who are agreeing with him. I read about a guy found last year. He was living in Tennessee. His name's Friedrich Karl Berger. Living an ordinary life as an ordinary man for several decades in Tennessee when it was discovered that he actually was a guard in World War II, a Nazi guard serving at a concentration camp where he was responsible to oversee people who were being killed by the thousands. 43,000 innocent people died on his watch. The neighbors didn't even know anything about it. He was ordinary. Ordinary old man at this point. It's always tempting to think that the horrific crimes could only happen by the really, really bad people. The really, really bad people, they're the ones. They're the sociopaths, the psychos, the extreme cases. They're the ones that do this stuff. Except history proves that this is not true. That there's something wrong with humanity that's much deeper and more pervasive and more permeating and here's the problem. Humanity has been misdiagnosing their problem for centuries, millennia even. That we don't know what's wrong with us and therefore we do not change. And for all the progress that we make and all the technological advances and all the new ways of educating, we're only being plunged deeper into darkness. I wonder if you've been misdiagnosing your own problems. And therefore, you haven't been able to change. And that you've only found more darkness after all your efforts to change. In our text, Mark chapter 7, Jesus has encountered people who have misdiagnosed their problem. And rather than becoming more holy, the people that Jesus is interacting with have actually plunged deeper into sin, deeper into vain worship, deeper into hypocrisy, all because they're misdiagnosing their problem. Jesus is interacting with these individuals, this group of people, and he's going to help them see the true nature of their problem, even if it hurts. He's going to help them see the true nature. He's going to hold up the mirror. He's going to show them who they are. And in doing so, he is providing that which they need to truly change. He doesn't want them to misdiagnose their problems. He wants them to see the true issue. And if they can say the true issue, then they can actually grow. They can change. We're in Mark chapter 7. We're in verse 14. Jesus has just been talking to the Pharisees. Let me read the text. As he kind of concludes this previous section with a lesson. Where he helps them see their true problem. Verse 14, and he called the people to him and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, 
adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. In our text, we're going to have three headings. First will be the misdiagnosis, second will be the right diagnosis, and third will be the cure. The misdiagnosis, the right diagnosis, and what we need as the cure. First, let's take a look at the misdiagnosis. You're in chapter 7. You can look back to chapter 1 and just remember the context here. We're dealing with Pharisees. Pharisees who had worked extremely hard, incredibly hard, to ensure that they were clean on the outside. They believed that the way they presented themselves to God was by doing all they can, all they could to remain ceremonially clean. So they'd wash their hands before eating. And they'd do all the kinds of washings. They'd wash their cups. They'd wash their couches. If they went to the marketplace and they might have brushed shoulders with a Gentile, a non-Jew, they would have come back and washed themselves entirely. Why? Because they believed that what their biggest problem was was what came in from the outside. The influences that came in from the outside were the things that made them unclean and made them unpresentable to God. So if they wanted to be right with God, they had to guard whatever would be allowed into their lives. So they are meticulously washing themselves, fastidious rule keepers. Jesus saw right through them. If you remember from our last, not last week, Mark preached last week, the week before that, If you remember back then, Jesus saw right through it. He called them hypocrites in verse 6. He said that their worship was vain in verse 7. In vain do they worship me. In other words, God looked at their worship and he saw right through it and he saw it as a sham. It was a mockery of true worship. Why? Because it had all the externals. It was all the appearance. It was only addressing the outsides and it had nothing to do with their hearts. Their hearts were far from God, but they thought they could, by cleansing themselves and keeping these rules, make themselves presentable to God, and they got it all wrong. And so in verse 14 now, Jesus is going to correct them. And so he starts out, he says, he called the people to them again. It says, he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. He, he has a lesson that they all need to hear. The Pharisees need to hear it, even though the Pharisees would have prided themselves on being the ones that were educated. They were the religious elite. Jesus has something to teach them. Clearly, they do not understand something. There's two uh, imperatives found in Jesus' words there. He says, hear and understand. Those are the two things he's calling these people to do. You have to listen to me. You have to understand what I'm teaching because you don't get it. Their whole system of false worship is the result of them not getting it. They have not understood what God demands of them. And therefore, they've misdiagnosed their problem, and their worship, therefore, is empty and vain. So this is relevant. And then he says there in verse 15, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus uh, says this, that is what is defiling you, Pharisee? What is defiling you, you honorable, religious elite, well-educated. It's not what's coming into you. It's not the stuff, the, the, the dirt. It's not the uncleanness of the foods that you're eating. It's not the fact that you're getting too close to an unclean Gentile. It's none, none of those things. 
Those are not the things that are defiling you. It's what's coming out of you that is defiling you. You're missing the point. You're thinking that God wants you to be ceremonially clean on the outside by guarding anything that comes into you, and you're actually coming to God, therefore, with hard hearts that are far from God. They're hypocritical. You do so much about the externals and nothing about your heart. And so Jesus says it's vain. It's all vain. It's vain. Now that is where it kind of gets left. And in verse 17, the disciples are kind of confused. So they want to go back into the house and and discuss it. If you have an older translation, like a King James version or an older NASB, there's a verse 16 uh, there that the modern translations have left out because newer and better manuscripts have found that that probably wasn't a part of the original text. And so here we are with our ESV. We go right into 17. It has no real significant bearing on the actual meaning of the text there. So they go into the house. The disciples are with them. In verse 18, it says, And he said to them, Are you also without understanding? Uh, they, were, they, looked at the, they heard what he said at the end of verse 17. It says they wanted to know about the parable. You say, Parable. You see that word parable there, end of verse 17? Parable. I thought a parable was a story about, you know, prodigal son or a field of grass or, you know, why, why is he called this a parable? Parable is any kind of riddle-like saying where some is revealed, some is conve- concealed that you really have to wrestle with and think through. The disciples aren't quite getting this. This idea that things coming in defile, but not the, what's going on here? They're not quite getting it. So Jesus takes them. They're in the back room. And he says to them, and with kind of harsh words, kind of, you know, very blunt, Jesus says in verse 18, he said to them, then are you also without understanding? One translation says, are you dull? Are you so dull? In other words, they're acting just like the unbelieving, hard-hearted crowds. Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? This is kind of graphic language, by the way. The English translation kind of tidies it up a little bit. It's much more graphic in Greek. The word expelled is literally toilet. Okay? Let that word picture sink into your mind. What you eat comes out. That's what he's saying. The NET translation, which is pretty good at being word for word, it says, he does not, or for it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and then it goes out into the sewer. So you get the picture. Your body eats something, it digests it, and out it goes. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, the things that you're taking in through your diet are not touching your heart. They're not changing your soul. They're not changing your inner person. None of that is changed. You could keep all the strictest food rituals and separation ceremonies and try to be externally separated from all the wickedness out there, and it won't actually change your heart one bit. There's a little parenthetical mark there at the end of verse 19 where he says, thus he declared all foods clean. Mark is inserting this theological reality that now Jesus is saying that all the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament are now clean. Uh, The Old Testament saw there were a lot of Old Testament dietary laws around what they could eat and what they couldn't eat, what was clean and what was unclean. And here by this statement, Jesus is saying it's all clean. It's all fair game. You can eat it all. And this is why we enjoy a good slice of bacon on a Saturday morning. Is because in the New Covenant, we are free to enjoy that meat. Amen? Amen. It's a good thing we're in the New Covenant. Now, Jesus here is, is highlighting that fact. I'm sorry, Mark is highlighting this fact that it's all clean. See, the things that come into your body are not what defile you. That's his point. 
The things that come in from the outside are not making you unclean. They are not ruining your relationship with God. They are not defiling you and making you impure before God. What he does say is that there's something else that's doing that. There's some bigger problem. The problems you face are not from the outside in. This is monumental, church. Follow this. The problems you're facing are not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Jesus' point is this. The bad stuff is already there. It's already there down in your core. The, The bad stuff is already deep down in your heart. It's not about you trying to clean yourself and make sure that all the outside stuff doesn't get in. The bad stuff's already there. You don't have to teach it. You don't have to learn it. It's already there, resident in your heart. In church, this is a monumental truth that every generation must always fight for because we are perpetually drifting from this reality. We are always in danger of trying to change from the outside in rather than from the inside out. And so many of our attempts at change are stalled or stopped because we have bought the lie that our biggest problems are out there and not in here. We have bought the lie that if life is going to change, I need to fix what's out here. I like these Pharisees. What do I eat? What do I drink? Who do I stay away from? And rather, Jesus is saying, no, the problem, the real problem, the true problem is already there on the inside. That's what defiles you. That's what ruins your relationship with God. That's what makes you unclean. That's what makes you unrighteous. You can't change your heart from the outside in. But we're always trying. Let me give you some examples. We're always trying to change our problems from the outside in. One way is we fixate on our circumstances. The problem is in the circumstances in my life or in our society. It's our circumstances that need to change. I was raised in a dysfunctional family. That's the reason for all my problems. It was my circumstances. The psychologists will tell you that. They'll say you, you are the product of all your unmet needs. You're the product of all the bad things that ever happened to you. And you'll sit down on the, the couch and they'll describe to you why you are the way you are. And they will tell you that the reason you are the way you are is because your circumstances. The bad life or the hard life or the dysfunctional life you've experienced is a result or has made you who you are. That's your problem. Or they'll say, here's another way that plays itself out. The problem is the systemic issues in our society. The politicians will tell you this. The biggest problems we face are in our government. And if we could just get the right politicians in the right places, the right people in power, then all our problems would go away. Right? If we could just get the right people making the right laws and the right rules, poof. There would go all our issues. Utopia would be ushered in by our government. That's what politicians are trying to tell you. They're they're just doing the same thing. Outside in change. Never works. There will never be utopia because a government cannot change the heart. Uh, Some people say we just need more education. Again, this is a kind of circumstances. Or others will say we just need more wealth. Just need more people with more money. Then you would get rid of anyone who is lying and cheating and stealing. If we just had more wealth... Uh, then we would fix the problems. All of these are wrong approaches to change. And then we get more personal. Uh, We can live as individuals with this idea that the problem is always out here. The problem is my spouse. 
The problem is my career. The problem are my kids. The reason we fight is because the house is too small. The reason we get anxious is because we don't make enough money. Uh, the reason I'm walking in constant worry is because it truly is a scary world out there and I might get sick. The problems in the government, the problems in the media, the problems in that person, the problems in what they said to me, they are the problem. It's the circumstances out there. And listen, there are issues out there. Believe me, you know, I don't need to prove it to you. The issues are true and real and out there. But by fixing outward circumstances, you can never fix your heart. There's another way that people try to outside in change. It's by just focusing on their behaviors. And this feels a little more Christian because at least we're saying, well, I need to take responsibility for my own actions. And so we start thinking about, I can change by changing my behaviors. I'm just going to be more patient. I'm just going to try really hard. I'm just going to do the right thing. I'm just going to make sure that I am always diligent to be hardworking and above reproach and I'm focusing on my behaviors. These people tend to be highly religious, very committed, often even people of integrity, but they tend to see problems in themselves as merely lacking certain techniques they don't need heart change. They need advice. They need to learn new tips and tricks for how they are to live. It's never their sin. Friends, this is a massive market that's selling you stuff all the time. Girl, wash your face is self-help. It's all about behavioral change. It is not gospel. It's not true. And it is coded in truth, and therefore it even is published by a Christian author or Christian publisher, but it's not true. Women are brought into this kind of stuff all the time because there's this belief that it's the right thing. Well, no, it's just focusing on behavior. It doesn't really focus on the real deep needs. And men are being sold all these different kind of self-help, mumbo-jumbo type books, productivity stuff. If you just read it and you just apply these principles, you'll be able to change. And you won't. It will give you a few weeks of feeling pretty good and you will come tumbling down because the real issue was never fixed. You took some Tylenol to fix your cancer. It never really ends up lasting. And so we say, okay, well, if it's not be just our circumstances that need to change, if it's more than just our behavior, how about our thinking? If I could just get my thinking to change, that's even more deep within, right? That's, that's more inside. Even that is not quite there yet. There's all kinds of therapies that are godless built on you trying to get your thinking to change. You can retrain your thought patterns. You can replace every destructive thought with a positive thought. You can learn the power of positive thinking. And in all these things, you could try to change. And there will be some kinds of changes that come on the outside, but nothing internally. I recently listened to a story about a man who was addicted to alcohol and he got involved in a 12-step program and he went through the whole thing and he, o out, he came out the other end and he had overcome his enslavement to alcohol. But then, not long after, he became slaved, enslaved to all kinds of other vices. He became morbidly obese, enslaved to sexual sin. He cut off relationships with all his family members who wanted to love him. He was estranged from them. Why? Because he had harvested... Uh, he had 
inside his heart all kinds of other sins that he did not deal with. In other words, he changed his circumstances, he changed his behavior, he changed his thinking, but he didn't change his heart. He traded one sin for another. And there are people who have tried to find change by changing their circumstances. And they've tried to come to change by changing their behavior. You can try really hard now. It's going to be the hardest I've ever tried. Or they've tried to change by changing their thinking. And it doesn't last. And I wonder if that's you. Genuinely trying to fix what's wrong. And so you're trying to always, what's the next thing I can try because nothing's working? Maybe you are the person who's gone from thing to thing, a new therapist, a new religion, new friends, a new car, a new home. Why? Because nothing's working. Nothing's working. And so Jesus at the risk of offending his hearers, which he does, you'll see, they're offended to the point that they want to kill him, he points out the real issue. Look at what he says. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Defile, what does that mean? It, it makes you unclean. It makes you filthy before a holy God. It, it gets in the way of your relationship with God. It inhibits you from enjoying fellowship with God and man. What defiles you? It's what's in your heart, is what Jesus is saying. Your heart, what is that? Uh, a lot of us used to watching Disney and growing up on that have thought that our hearts are basically our feelings. But that's not the biblical definition. Uh, the biblical definition of the heart is the inner you, the way you think. Yes, the way you feel, but also the way you choose, the way you evaluate, the things you desire your longings, your aches, all the inner man, all the inner woman, that's who you are truly. That's what the Bible says is your heart. And Jesus is saying if you want to truly understand your problem, if you want the proper diagnosis, is that you have a heart that is fallen, broken, sinful, selfish, yes, wicked. That's what Jesus says. Jesus is regarded as one of the most influential men to have ever lived, even by those who are not Christians. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize the impact Jesus has had on the world. And Jesus' belief is that what's wrong with humanity, the reason why there are wars upon wars and genocides and murders and adultery and dysfunction and brokenness Everywhere you look is not because the circumstances are bad and the government's wrong and the laws are bad and the circumstances are problematic. No, the problem is the human heart is corrupt. That you, if you want to change, you have to look in the mirror and say, 
I am the problem. I am the problem. My heart is the problem. It's not merely my circumstances. It's not merely my behavior. It's not even merely my thinking. I just got to think different thoughts. Deep down, the core of who I am is sinful and corrupt. That I am sinning against a holy God and I live in sin. Why is there evil in the world? Jesus says, according to this text, is because out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Those evil thoughts turn into evil actions and there's evil in the world. Look at the, look at the words. Look at the way he describes what's in the heart. Evil thoughts. Well, why are there broken marriages and dysfunctional families? Why? Because in the human heart there is sexual immorality. Why do we lock the doors on our cars and our homes and put up little ring cameras to try to make sure that we're surveying, we're watching, whatever that word is, we're watching people out there at night. Why do we do that? It's because we are worried about what people might do. Why? Because there's theft in the human heart. Jesus said so, right there. Why do people kill each other? Why do people actually murder? Why do people think it's okay to take another life? There's murder in the heart. Adultery in the heart. You say, why, how could someone choose a life of adultery? They know it's going to ruin their marriage. It's going to ruin their family. It's going to ruin their relationships. It's going to destroy their lives. How is it possible that they could go down the road to adultery? It's in their heart. It's in the human heart. Verse 22, coveting. That's the idea of we want what other people's got. Wickedness. It's, a, it's the idea of we actually like the darkness. We actually prefer to be in the dark. We don't want people to know what's going on in our lives. Deceit. That's the idea of trying to cover up and beautify our wickedness. Sensuality. This is the, the idea of having no restraint when it comes to indulging the senses. You, you want something, your body feels a desire for something, then you go for it, you indulge. Envy. The word literally in Greek is evil eye. It's the idea of looking at something that someone else has and wanting it for yourself. Slander, that's verbal violence. Pride, that's the underlying and foundational problem. We exalt ourselves. We live as if there's no God in the world. And to cap it all off, foolishness, the pinnacle, there it is. We live as if there is no God, as if he's not there, as if he does not care. This is all from within. No one has to teach your children to do these things. They learn it because that's in there. They do it because who they are. We do this because that's what's in the heart. This is offensive to people who think they're naturally good. And there are a whole bunch of people, they even fill up churches. That if you were to ask them, is human nature basically good or basically evil? They will say, well, of course, we're all basically good. And that is the opposite of what Jesus is teaching here. He's teaching that people are basically, fundamentally evil. The modern world hates this message. And they're preaching all the time in every show, in every movie, in every book that we're basically good, we're just misunderstood. This is a quick little rant. If you've ever watched some of the movies that come out now, what's always happening is the bad guys 
They're just misunderstood. You notice this. There are no real villains being made anymore. In a postmodern world, there's no right, there's no wrong. So the bad guys are just misunderstood. In fact, many movies are being made from the bad guy's perspective, trying to paint it in a new way. So you go, oh, I understand why they'd kill all those people. That makes a lot of sense. It's insane. The world is insane. When you go away from God, when you say there's no right, there's no wrong, there, there, there's no category for understanding why all this wickedness exists. But it does. And then you get back to Scripture and you say, oh, it's because we're not good. We're all villains. We're the bad guys in the story, okay? All of us are the bad guys. And out of our hearts are coming this wickedness, this disgusting kind of filth flowing out of our hearts through our mouths and our relationships, corrupting everything it touches in the governments, in the schools, in the education. It's everywhere. And the reason we know it's everywhere is because it starts here. The problem is, is we see it out there and we forget it's in here. And so we have no way to really address the problem as long as we're going, oh, that needs to fix, that needs to be fixed, that needs to be fixed, that needs to be fixed, but I'm good. It's in, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I remember hearing an analogy that the modern world thinks the human heart is a beautiful diamond, pure and good and pretty to look at. The problem is, is that there's been some mud that's flung on the outside and and maybe over the passage of time, there's been some grime that's, you know, grown up and, and accumulated on our diamond of our heart. And so all of human religion is trying to clean the mud off. And all, all of us, are we're trying to scrub really hard to clean up that diamond. And if we could just get all this stuff off, that you would see how pretty we really are on the inside. That we're all really good. We just, just need some cleansing, some, some things to come on from the outside and, and clean us up. You know what Jesus says? Your heart's not a diamond. It's a cesspool. It's filthy. Evil thoughts are there. Wickedness, sexual deviancy, perversion, corruption. And listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, you do not object to any of these. You say, yep, I know. <laughs> I know what's in there. That's why I came to Christ. Because I could do nothing about it. If you're offended by what Jesus is saying, take issue with Jesus. Jesus is not wrong on this. He has made it very clear that this is the human problem. I wonder if you've ever come to really take a hard look at your own heart. To really pause and ask yourself, what's going on in there? C.S. Lewis was once an agnostic, did not believe in God, couldn't, or thought you could never know. Eventually became a Christian and wrote many Christian books. But he writes about a time in his autobiography when he, for the first time, examined who he really was. He wrote, for the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Have you come to know who you really are? 
Have you come to see your heart for what it really is? There is so much hope when you identify the true problem. And that is why Jesus in perfect love is so blunt about it. Because he wants us to know the true problem. Why? So that we will reach out for the true cure. Friends, you are, we are down to the very core corrupt. And the problem is us. And we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot reason our way out of this, feel our way out of this, fix ourselves. There must be something from the outside. And here's where we get to our third point, the cure. It's not in our text. But when you zoom out from our text and you understand the whole of the Christian story, the cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has set forth a covenant. That is a promise, an agreement between two parties. That's what a covenant is. And God in this new covenant has made an agreement of how he will treat those who trust his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose for sinners. And we read it this morning when Hans read through the passage in Ezekiel. Let me read it again this morning and it'll help you understand what it is that God does and what God has promised in the new covenant. Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Listen to this. And I will will give you a new heart. Listen, if you are not saved, if, if you are coming to the realization that your heart is desperately wicked, here's the good news, is that God has promised to those who come to Him that He will give you a new heart. It says that He will put His Spirit within you. He will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, the good news is that God himself will do this for you, church. God himself has done this for you. All those who are redeemed, trusting in Christ, you have been given a new heart. You have been changed from the inside out. That you feel that, yes, there are old principles still at war within you, but the new heart God has given you is for righteousness and for purity and for holiness. And if you are sitting here going, well, I don't have any of that. My heart is wicked and I need some uh, I need some change. You don't need scrubbing. You don't need fixes on the outside. What you need, according to Jesus, is a new heart. And what you have in the new covenant promise of the gospel is a new heart. It's yours. Do you want to change? Can you change? You can. But you can't change yourself. God can change you. And God alone. From the inside out. He will address your heart. If you need a new heart, ask for it. Ask for it. And in His mercy, He will grant you a new heart. Come to God in humble repentance and faith and trust that He can give you a new heart. And if you are a Christian and you have never been able to overcome the sins, you need to address your heart. 
And so often our hearts are so twisted and deceived and, and confused. We need help. If you're stuck in some kind of issue that you're struggling with, you can't overcome, get the help from brothers and sisters in the church who can help you address the deepest issues of your heart. Repent. Be humble. Don't blame anything out here. Agree with Jesus that the problems are from within. And by His grace, seek to change. Let's pray. So Lord, I we pray now that those who need new hearts would be brought to repentance. They would ask for them and that you would grant them. Those of us who need to change, we would not try to change merely by changing our circumstances, changing our behavior, or even changing our thinking, but that we would repent and look to Jesus to change us from the inside out. Do this for your glory and conform us into the image of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.